0: Before we get started with what I can only assume is an episode of Restless filled with audible gold, I need to remind you that this is the season to buy. And what better to buy than a Restless book? We've got two books available if you haven't bought them already. First up is The Deacon of God, now for the first time available in a paperback edition. In this book, Matt and I compiled what historical Reformed confessions had to say about the civil government, and we tried to provide some study questions as helpful guides for you as you read them. Secondly, you can still get my book 77 times, Reflections on Forgiveness. Both of these are available if you go to the RestlessPodcast.com or if you prefer, you can just go straight to Amazon and search for either. Now let's get back to the podcast.
1: This is Winsome Winter. Welcome back to the Restless Podcast. I am your host, Matt. I am joined by Pastor Michael. It is it is winter, Michael. I had a lentil stew to keep myself warm. You know, baby, it is cold outside. Not like the song, though. Not like the song at all. Michael, how
0: are you doing tonight? <laughs> I'm doing well. I, I feel the cold. I'm doing... Uh chores on the farm is uh, a little bit more difficult when it's cold out but uh, it's a good refreshing thing to do in the morning and i feel uh, particularly winsome today mm. so i hope we have a, wow, a, that, a particularly winsome time
1: that's that's really good we we will see if we can if we can stay winsome for an entire broadcast that will, <laughs> that is yet to that is yet to ever probably happen but you know what today's a great day because it is actually Win some winter in july because we are joined by paul no not that paul the other paul um the other paul of the sydney anglicans who is uh yeah we'll let you t- we'll let him tell you about himself paul welcome to the show we are excited to get to talk to you today gentlemen thank you so much for
2: having me i love it you're the first i can't believe it. you're like the first guys like in a video period whether it's an interview whether it's a reaction anything to like mention not verbatim but like almost almost exactly my OG catchphrase not the not the Paul who wrote most of the New Testament the other Paul so I'm happy about
1: that I'm super appreciative about that great Um, yeah we're happy to have you tell tell the audience who you are and we'll and we can tell them why we were excited to have you specifically uh since you didn't write the New Testament given (laughs) Oath Oath well, I might as well, let's be real. But uh, <laughs> the reason, who I am in a nutshell, as you gents
2: said, is I'm an Anglican, specifically in the Sydney Anglican Archdiocese here in Australia. Um, haven't been for too long, actually. And in fact, for most of my life, I have actually been Pentecostal. Um, and even to this day, I still maintain charismatic beliefs in many respects. And like very little uh, have I actually shaved off uh, from that since I became Anglican. Um, and so that was the vast majority of it. Um Originally, when I was searching for a new church, because there's a whole story behind uh, the period in 2021 and early 2022, when I was searching for a church, my ideal was actually to go to Presbyterian, um, mm. believe it or not. But um, I only ended up going to this specific Anglican church I go to and now adopting Anglicanism. Not like most people where it's like, hmm, I'm going to study the different traditions and see which one I'm most like. I was actually, I wasn't like a massive expert in any of them to begin mm. with. Um, although I had some fair degree of familiarity with them and I preferred Presbyterianism and I actually wanted to go that way. Um, but ultimately this wasn't a time, especially in the lockdown period and post lockdown period, it wasn't a time really to be picky and choosy. So, um, and I didn't have any problems with Anglicanism anyway. So when I heard of this church, started decided to check them out and I was like, yeah, this is going to be my home. And then I decided um, that because I actually take seriously as a, even as a Protestant, I take seriously the idea of, uh, of, of church, of church authority and being in concord with the communion that you're within, willing to submit yourself to it, um, mm-hmm. so far as conscience and Holy Scripture itself permits, I decided, you know what? If I'm going to go to this church, I'm going to adopt the Anglican worldview, even though I didn't specifically set out to find the best Christian tradition. And so, largely because of that, I may get into this very much largely contra many Romanist and Eastern uh, accounts and strawmen of how Protestants come to find their theology, uh, with me, it wasn't merely just studying these things and picking which one I liked the most. It was actually kind of the other way around. I hmm. just found this community, and I chose to submit to their uh, their traditional uh, their traditional teachings, and obviously, largely because um, it cohered with my already existing uh, foundational beliefs and standards and that. But that's like literally the same for everyone. No one's no one's different in that respect. So that was me. That's how I came to Anglicanism. Uh, my channel I've had going on for much uh, a fair bit longer than that since around I want to say late 2020. I had like a couple of things on it before then, but it was largely uh, hampered because I was in college at the time. Um, but then eventually end of 2020, I was able to like knuckle down. I used the summer break then to say, okay, this is the time I'm gonna I'm gonna get right on this. And uh, so ever since then, I've been uh, making content on anything any topic that I see value in producing educational stuff on regarding scripture theology and history um and so anything on those topics i i will gladly make content on although of course for periods i will have key interests in certain things um so two the two videos the two first big videos that really talk off my channel were kind of responses on the issue on a couple to a couple of like uh, one TikTok lady and one youtube lady claiming that homosexuality isn't a sin in the bible and of course i eviscerated them with uh, actual evidence Um, With a lot of memes to go with that as well. And that was the initial selling point of my channel and something I do want to return to videos with, which are both super educational, but also really funny Um, because so that I can show people I'm not just some ivory tower academic because I hate that. Um, But now, especially in the recent period and uh, most relevant to this interview is my interaction with other Christian traditions in general, in particular, Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. I kind of dove headfirst into that. Um, really before I even started the channel, actually back in 2018, when I was really challenged by a Roman Catholic friend. Um, and that kind of sent me into the, into the rabbit hole of reading on these things. And so if you guys want to talk about that at some point, I'm, I'm keen as well, but, uh, that's how I got to where I am. And I genuinely consider it a issue of utmost importance to, uh, discern the true nature of the Christian faith. And I believe as far as I know, at this point, Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, are. Uh, awful bastardizations of what the faith of christ is and are leading many souls astray and so that's why i focus quite a bit on this issue above many others
1: mm. well definitely shout out to the sydney anglicans because they are based they are they are uh we we give them a we give a, them a hearty endorsement man i think it would be so interesting you know just a, a, it's it's way beyond our scope now to to talk to you about you know even some of the particularity particularities of anglicanism and um uh even charismaticism i am i am famously uh have become a cessationist so that would be another time but i think man there's just so much (laughs) i know it's okay (laughs) you can you can do it Uh... i will just say um the meme game on the other paul's youtube channel and such is incredibly strong and so you 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 will not uh you will not regret clicking on um any such videos and and as we talk, Paul, feel free. If there's like, if we hit a topic that you're like, dude, I made a, you know, I made a stream, I made a video on that subject, please shout it out for people. And we'll, we'll put links, we'll put links in the show notes. Um, but yeah, we are excited to get into it because Michael, you can even speak to this, you know, I think we are finding here in the United States where people feel rootless where people also, I just want to, one more thing, Paul did an awesome, uh, awesome Aussie thing where he was able to call something a bastardization here in America it's like well you can't talk like that but one of my favorite things
2: oh
1: yeah (laughs) I know one of my favorite things about my Aussie friends is like dude sometimes our church like goes to bars and we can say things like that and those aren't those aren't a big deal on the on on as 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 we jokingly call it the uh, on the on the prison continent you know so it's all good down there Um, (laughs) that's it but uh, so, I, so I'm excited for the conversation because I think it'll be fun and freewheeling. But Michael, I think it's an important conversation for the reasons Paul said, but we see people, I mean, we see, I mean, we already, I'll, well, I'm sure it'll get there, but there have been even some high profile people leaving evangelicalism for Rome. Um, we know people leaving, um, you know, Protestantism, evangelicalism for Eastern Orthodoxy, right? Like you see these things, happen right these are this is kind of in the zeitgeist right now and so i think it is really important for us to think about how to interact with this how to mm. interact you know whether we you know in an in an at least in an intellectually honest way right actually dealing with them because right you know um we could we could interact with the worst of what they have to offer and that would be no good but it's difficult michael do you have anything you want to add on just on on why we think this is a really relevant conversation at least for protestants young yeah
0: yeah absolutely uh, particularly for um the i don't know primary demographic although we we're pretty uh, broad in the kinds of people that we reach with this podcast um in, including for instance we have uh, roman catholic listeners and uh you know so it's it's a fairly broad group but uh the primary demographic is probably more conservative young Protestant men and right now there does seem to be a pretty significant push um I would say just even just culturally um with in the West to um, look for particularly again for young conservative men to look for some kind of rootedness in tradition and uh, there's a lot of times where that you know that leads them to think well my only option is, you know, either Roman Catholicism, which was just, you know, I feel like, you know, growing up, that would have been like where somebody goes. And even, I mean, part of that is just where we live. We live um, in an area in Wisconsin where it just, you are Catholic or Lutheran and that's right. You couldn't find an Orthodox, right. You couldn't find a
1: highly educated Orthodox priest. You know, if you, if even if you were Interesting. Yeah, we do have in my
0: town. We do have a an Eastern Orthodox church, I'm a Greek Orthodox church, um, but it's it's relatively small. But it does seem to me that actually Eastern Orthodoxy has become even even uh, more interesting to a lot of young guys that I'm talking to. And so um, that's you know something that's just come up in the last few years that I would never have necessarily have expected. So so I do think it's important along those lines uh, because there's so much much desire to find some kind of rootedness and often that leads people to think well maybe my only options are are these two maybe that's a good place to start paul do you mm-hmm. maybe you have a thoughts on what
1: what is attractive now right you would think and no one would no one would think in 2022 that millennials and gen z men are going to be like yeah i'm i'm going to be inter- i'm interested in the the latin mass right i'm interested <laughs> you know in the in eastern orthodoxy right that just seems counter to what we you know, at least is you know, again, the, the lamestream media kind of, you know, talks about our generations. What do you think the draw mm. is for people?
2: Yeah, there's honestly a whole host of different um, arguments and reasons people will rage uh, raise for converting to East or to Rome. Um, and I think many of them, I think a good majority of them could be split into two rough categories, I think, of aesthetics and epistemology. And mm. so aesthetics would be it's not just simply oh, it looked pretty. Although that's that is definitely one of them. Like you'll hear a bunch of people say, "Hmm, Latin mass look nice and look it beautiful. It sound nice," um, which is, it isn't <laughs> nothing. But like to have that as like a, a primary motivator, which I have known some people that is. It's like, I mean, bruh, br- come on, like go look at Eastern Orthodoxy. They they look nice too, but right. they're mutually exclusive. Whatever. Um, so that. But then also in in aesthetics in a more broad sense, where they see the beauty of the order and the hierarchy and the histor- alleged historical continuity emphasis on alleged there uh for Rome and the East and so all that together it gives a it, it gives a, a great appeal to an internal sense of like there's consistency here therefore there's true beauty here therefore there's truth here uh which is in certain contexts when that's when that's really well controlled with a good worldview that can be a good factor that can be a good motivation um unfortunately as i uh, as i can show in my many materials and that on this topic it's simply not the case rome and the east make certain key claims which are either not very well evidenced um which mm. on its own wouldn't be an issue that doesn't mean you can't believe them um but it does go against the historic claims that oh well we believed everybody in the past believed them um but then with other certain claims you can show quite decisively that they're just false and maybe we can get into that at some point if you guys want um but otherwise point being beauty arguments aesthetic arguments they're a big 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 portion of it and uh, I think that was at least a factor a largely a likely a very significant factor in Bertuzzi's conversion for example mm. he he almost he almost referenced a sort of a burning in the bosom if you will when he went to uh went to the Latin mass um yeah. at, at some point and then the other kinds of arguments are epistemological which are encompassing of a whole host of if to be real hyper-skeptical arguments, uh, from Roman apologists and Eastern apologists alike where they'll try to say in a Protestant worldview, you can't uh, account for how you know things well, or you can't account for, uh, how you, uh, ground your doctrine, or you can't say that this belief is a offic- is officially heretical or orthodox. You can't call people heretical. Um, something which Michael Lofton argued in a recent stream, which I'm responding to tomorrow in, uh, Shall we say uh less than uh less than tame mode than I normally am because oh he has it coming, but anyway, anyway. Um we'll, also inter-
1: you'll have already done it by the time this interview will. drops, and so we will link to the other Paul's less than tame uh response. That's to it, that, that's it. That yeah. answer just
2: sometimes with some people when they're high profile enough and they've spread, which I I I ble- it's not just being wrong, but active disinformation in my belief. Mm uh, they definitely need a much stronger response. And by the way, really quickly, before I continue, uh, what are the rules of engagement of language limits? Cause you know, I'm Australian and we talked about this briefly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, If um, I feel really strongly about something, can I say a word? <laughs>
1: uh, we, yeah, we'll, we'll say yes. I don't, I, we, we'd like to not get an E on Apple podcasts, but, um, I wonder, <laughs> do they change how that works for you guys too? Cause that's, uh, I have so, no idea, but yeah, we'd like <laughs> to avoid the E on Apple podcasts, but we are not, uh, we are we're okay you know i'm i'm it's I'm not gonna it's not gonna hurt our feelings yeah we're, we're all we're Perfect. good thinking of your audience as well being uh
2: yanks and all that jazz that's right um, so we're if i feel delicate. really strongly about something am i allowed to call it straight up bs
1: <laughs> oh yeah if if, if <laughs> legendary
2: so, yeah. thank you very much i like you guys already anyway <laughs> getting back to that uh epistemological arguments that try to undermine the uh consistency and foundation of a protestant worldview many different forms of that out there And so uh, there are those kinds of reasons which will motivate and have motivated many Protestants uh, to seek uh, refuge, epistemic refuge, so to speak, uh,
0: Mm -hmm. in
2: Rome or the East, because they have the claim of a tradition and a living church, which can just spoon feed you the truth uh, whenever it so feels the need, um, which to them gives a bit of a uh, what uh, some of my friends have brilliantly labeled an epistemic safety net. Um, sure. where they feel they feel such worry and anxiety about the uncertainty in normal human faculties and thinking um, mm. that they look at these claims of a true church and without even very well trying to actually establish that that thing is even real, they'll often put the cart before the horse and just go straight there because as it, if its claims are true, it provides such a great safety net. Mm. Um, and so that's a very, very uh, large... Uh, motivator for why many people uh go to a roman to the roman or eastern churches
1: that's that's really good stuff i i I mean we already have so many good things to to jump off from there right the key claims they make the the Mm. the possibility of a protestant epistemology i want to i want to comment on two things and then we can Mm. keep keep pushing i want to make sure our audience knows uh when he mentioned cameron bertuzzi this is a guy who runs a uh yeah well-known evidential apologetics channel who has just um converted to rome um and that and that is who paul was referencing and i don't need to link to any of that because if you google it there will be 1 million posts and a thousand videos you can watch if you'd like to if you would like to learn more about that guy's that guy's life um the other thing is i think this idea of the the kind of in the in the secular age right in the in the technical in the chuck taylor sense this secular age where The big pressure religious people feel is what he calls cross pressure, where Mm -hmm. it's this it's this very to Western um, culture. It's this new pressure. People feel where you have to deal with every day the realization that I have a belief and there are lots of other options for belief, Mm -hmm. right? That that's not that's not something yeah. That actually is normal for humanity, right? Most people woke mm-hmm. up wherever they've lived and they had this belief. Yeah. And so Absolutely. it totally makes sense when you're like, so when you're facing that every day and you can turn to someone saying, like, don't worry, we we just will tell you exactly what to believe. There's no other option. We'll just tell you, we'll just tell you. Like that that would feel like, oh wow, finally, someone's just telling, you know, like and they can and they have a really good big hat on, right? They it feels really official right when they tell you what to do um that that that, that feels Absolutely. good michael michael do you have any comments or or any question where do you want to start asking paul about these these things
0: no i you know i i'm taking some notes um that might come up but they're a little bit more in the weeds probably uh, about some of these things some of the typical claims um so so i'll bring them up as as they seem relevant i guess I promise Michael, I promise you, Michael and
1: listeners, Paul loves, loves nuance, loves going three more levels deeper on any, on any issue. Oh yeah. There's no, that's my side point. From what I've enjoyed with him, he there's, he has no desire to like, yeah, let's just do a flyover of these things. So Paul, why don't we start then with some of these key claims? If we're going to interact with any, uh, Romanist, maybe you maybe you want to start telling people why you call them Romanists, um, in case they're feeling a little Mm. sensitive about that or Eastern Orthodox. But tell us about the tell us you can start with anywhere you want, but let's start with some of the key claims they make that we that a Protestant has to interact with, evaluate.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so those they'll they, they will make claims about the aesthetic points and all that, although they won't be as emphasized because like even they recognize beauty claims are a bit more like nailing jello to a wall and all that. Um, right. They'll make, they'll give the arguments, they'll give the epistemic arguments as I mentioned them and I can uh, go over them soon. Um, but the key, really the key claims they give are the of a more positive kind. Uh, that also is, I should have mentioned that really as a third category because the epistemic claims are more part of a negative kind of argument. Mm. Whereas they do, hard push their positive claims of the ideas of that Christ established an objective visible single church that has the power to define doctrine and maintain the truth infallibly. Um, We are in historical continuity with that. Therefore we are the true church and you must join us. Otherwise you're schismatics outside of the body of Christ. Um, And depending on who you ask, if you if you ask an Eastern Orthodox, you're at least one who knows what they're talking about. Um, you're outside of the church. You're not going to be safe. Simple as that. I I, I respect that. They're actually very. They they actually take seriously uh, their claim to hold to the uh, the old dictum of "extra ecclesiam nulla salus." Outside of the church, there is no salvation. Whereas a Roman Catholics, it's it's like, if you're outside of the church, if are you unsaved, it's like, oh, well, let's see if you're invincibly ignorant or uh, you're not in a position to know these things. Uh, there's just, there's the, and if you're baptized as well and you're, you're a really committed Protestant, but you're still very godly. Um, and there's a distinction between the body of the church, like it's canonical boundaries and the soul of the church it could be. So basically loop-de-loops um, right. of what from, compared to what they historically claimed. Like it's actually, it's actually quite breathtaking. They should get a gold medal for that gymnastics. But um <laughs> other than that, other than that, they'll still claim, nonetheless, we are the objective church in Christ, church of Christ, and you should join us. <clears throat> um, and part of the key issues with that is actually discerning, well, what did Christ mean when he said he established his church, um, mm. did he mean well? Did he mean something visible? And as Protestants, we can and must say, well, of course he did. We're physical people. We meet in physical communities. Of course we're meeting as the church. Um, the thing that they do when a Romanist or an Easterner brings up these proof texts, and really every, this is the case, people need to, who are listening need to drill this into their heads. Virtually every proof text, whether from Holy Scripture or from church history that a Romanist or Easterner will bring up, It is going to be loaded, and I mean loaded with presuppositions on what they think Mm. it means, stuff that's not actually derived from the text itself. And so when they say that Christ will establish a church uh, and the gates of hell won't overcome it, they very specifically mean Christ establishes a visible church that only exists in one single administrative uh, institution under the Pope of Rome or under a certain set of patriarchs Um, which and by by uh, the gates of hell not overcoming it it specifically means that that church can decree infallibly for all christians worldwide what to believe um now we could say we could grant okay that's a possible reading but it's not the only possible reading by a long shot because it doesn't say any of those things whatsoever and it is perfectly consistent with a protestant ecclesiology christ-established the visible church. What's the visible church? Well, everywhere that the body of believers, who, everyone who's baptized, the sacraments are administered and the gospel is preached. Uh, that's the church. That is the church that Christ established worldwide and is mystically united. Um, and what does it mean by the gates of hell will never overcome the church? Well, quite simply, it's talking about the gates of hell in a defensive posture. That's something that they people very much miss when they appeal to that proof text. They assume mm. that the gates of hell uh, on an offense, which doesn't make sense. People don't grab a gate and start bashing you with it, with a gate in a, in a combat. <clears throat> but um, that, so they often assume it's an offensive posture by hell because they like to say, oh, the church isn't going to fall. Um, and obviously we, we affirm that, of course, until the second advent of Christ is always going to be the church. But it's not actually saying that. It's saying that the hell itself is on the defensive. So in other words, whether now, whether in the future, whenever Christ is intending for that to happen, hell will fall. He is not saying that the worldwide visible church and many congregations will he's not saying that they will not fall into apostasy or error. In fact, Paul explicitly himself says so there will be a great apostasy uh, before the coming of Christ. And so he is not saying that there will not be great periods where the where a, a large swathe of the visible church will go awry. He doesn't say that he does, nonetheless, promise the faith will always exist. They will always be faithful. they will always be his faithful remnant until the end. That's all it's saying. That's it. That's perfectly. Uh, that's all perfectly uh, uh, permissive on a Protestant worldview, um, and that's among many, many kinds of claims they make. But that's really arguably one of the core ones that they'll do, and they'll appeal to other other elements that they think are necessary. So, Rome, for example. They'll of course say that, oh, look, Christ established uh Peter as the rock upon which the church is built. Therefore, you must be in communion with Peter's successors, specifically his successors in Rome, in order to be within the visible church. And I need not tell you how those are not the same statements, like at all, by any right. stretch of the imagination. But they often do like to like to act that it is. Um, and so that's that's a common one you'll hear. And more particularly today. Uh, if you guys have probably noticed the popularity of the Eliakim Peter typology Mm -hmm. argument um, which is absolutely explain
1: explain that a little bit to our listeners I just want to say that everyone everyone can see about the idea that the any any concept of Petrine primacy entails Roman the Roman claims yeah I am a I am a an MDiv student at a reformed theological seminary and my my professor said oh yeah Petrine primacy that's probably what that's probably what this is teaching, that he was the leader of the apostles. Wow,
2: he, when's he going to Rome, guys? Wow. I know. And and he was like,
1: and he's like, it seems like he basically just was like, Well, you know, it he's like, and I believe that. That seems like a very different thing to say. I believe about this text than he was, he was given, and again, this is this is I just want to point this out, just that it means he was given an office that wasn't an apostolic office. That was also going to be like a successive office, right? This doesn't mm. right. The most natural if you're going to compare it with other parts of scripture is when Jesus and the apostles talk about the foundation, right? That this mm. is again, yeah. he's talking about this founding the people who yeah. are going to give you scripture, the people who are going to <clears> um put the tradition of Christ down in an authoritative, right? In the authoritative letters of the New Testament. This is what seems yeah. most likely. Peter is their spokesman, Peter is their leader. And Jesus is recognizing that, authorizing yep. that as as the Lord, mm. but that he be that he's starting an infallible, non apostolic office that will yep. succeed forever and be based in Rome. It's a to- It's a totally different thing than to conclude. Yeah, this yeah, probably yeah, means Petrine primacy in this
2: case. Yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And we know for a fact. And I know that there will probably be Romans out there because I've interacted with some who've tried to get around this. But I'm just, um, I'm, I'm, I'm growing more and more tired of yeah. granting things for the sake of argument. Like, okay, let's just say you're right for this part of the argument. I'm just like, no, no, no. I'm not going to do that anymore because <laughs> you guys abuse that goodwill so much, even, even if you're the, of the best intentions. So like there are great Romanists out there who I yeah. still get frustrated with these kinds of things, but I'm just not going to grant that for the sake of argument at all anymore. Like, no, 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 no. The apostolic office, we know for a fact that was temporary. We, it's a fact, okay? Read Acts 1 for the right. qualifications of the guy who is to replace Judas. What is the first and key qualification that they give? Of course, all the resurrection eyewitness from the baptism of John all the way to the death and resurrection. That's right. Okay, so it is a fact. It is a basic fact that the office of the apostle was a temporary one. Um, Now, of course, theoretically, that doesn't outdo the idea that Peter at all could have established a distinct office that somehow carried on their infallibility. Uh, Problem: Where do they do that? They never do that. The only other offices that they do establish are the bishop and the deacon. That's it. Offices which are not apostles, which are never stated to be um, or have any level of a charism of infallibility, uh, let alone inspiration, which in the New Testament and the Old Testament, and I will assert this as a fact, that infallibility and inspiration go hand in hand. And so the Roman and Eastern systems, uh, mostly the Roman, because the East will actually kind of flirt with it, but the Roman system where uh, their infallible magisterial statements uh, infallible infallibly protected but not inspired uh that's just not a biblical concept at all period not doesn't exist you guys made that up um so uh
0: tell, us, tell no us what sense. you really think about
2: this <laughs> yeah yeah that it's it's it does it's it's it's
0: ugh. this is just this all is right. the best because
1: this is this is midwest nice meets the like i love it is, it aussie, is <laughs> oh yeah Aussie <laughs> like aussie oi. oh man it's the yeah. best and so okay yeah the, I'm, and i'm
2: reserving th- some of my words if i, may I know, know you, you are. are it's the best <laughs> <laughs> really, if I may really you know quickly finish my point. i really, oh, sorry. Really, yep, so, then, sorry. Then, we'll go, then I can get long So just jump sometimes.
1: straight from that, your point, finish your point, and jump straight to explaining to our audience this new Eliakim argument yeah, that I think it would be good 100%. for them to be aware of because it is new. It is new.
2: Yep, 100%. So point being, uh, the office that Peter received, his apostleship, uh, we know that that was temporary and they did that the The office, quote unquote, in a very basic sense of teaching the church was passed down to bishops, uh, but with respect to their powers as apostles, uh, that was limited to the apostleship. That is a demonstrable fact. Um, and so for them to claim that somehow the infallibility of the apostles, um, and even that can be a bit weird, like in what sense were they infallible? Um to say that that was passed on to to another specific bishop, because we all grant that that's not the case with all bishops. It's only in Rome, it's only the case with the Bishop of Rome. Um, they have to insert that assertion in there, whole cloth, carte blanche, zero evidence whatsoever in order to make that proof text work for them. Now, the get around for this that has recently most recently been employed uh, is the new Eliakim Peter typology argument. And to give a basic summary of it, um, if you want to see the, the argument in its full depth, you can see the primary architect of the modern form of the argument by, uh, by a Roman Catholic called Swan Sonna, S U A N, and then Sono, Sonna, S O N N A. And to say off the bat, super intelligent guy, super well read, knows what he's talking about, most mostly, and I will get to that. Um, and so and it's he a is, four hour argument to be f- oh, just yeah, so oh, yeah. and it's that's a just four the latest hour iteration, video. that is the latest iteration only. He has done many hours both on his own channel and other channels on this argument before and it and it actually there is borderline a whole documentable history of the evolution of this argument and there's still hmm. another stage of the argument in development right now he is creating a new updated version um and i've had heard, heard on it from good authority that he's working with multiple uh quite uh at least in these circles quite well-known roman catholics to make this latest version so still not the end of the story and that's actually the one that i intend to with some other friends of mine do a definitive like takedown of it but that that's that's for later anyway the argument itself basically asserts that <clears throat> uh, peter in matthew 16 18 19 and all that christ promises to peter uh i'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and uh, whatsoever you shall bind and earth shall be bound in heaven so on and so forth traditionally roman catholics would point to that just that statement on its own um in a literal sense face value as establishing the papacy Um, And for many good reasons, that's starting to be kind of taper off. And it's really not really appealed to in that same blunt manner by the top level Roman apologists now, because they know that there's a billion different ways to read that. Um, But now uh, really being pushed today is a certain other alleged factor, which if it's true um, would push the reading of the text all the way over to the paper soup. And so this is the Elyakim typology argument because in the passage of Matthew uh, Matthew 16, Christ mentions how he's giving keys to Peter. Whatsoever he shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever he shall loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Now, uh, proponents like Swansoner point out that there is a very, very similar passage in Isaiah 22, which refers to the uh, coming or then, I forget the exact context, uh, prime minister, so to speak, of Israel. So the guy, the vizier under the king uh, who who Christ says to him, oh, sorry, not Christ. Well, yeah, well actually yes, Christ, but uh, in the prophecy, it is said that uh, he will have the key singular of the house of David. Whatsoever he opens, none shall shut. Whatsoever he shuts, none shall open. And so not quite the same. And that's actually one of the arguments against it, that there is enough degree of similarity that you can't really say there's typology, but either way, you can see that there's quite a bit of similarity in some sense. And so from this, Swan argues that there is a direct type anti-type relationship between Eliakim and Peter. So Eliakim being the type, the, the first iteration of this thing, and then Peter, the anti-type or the uh the fulfillment of the prior type, so to speak, uh, who takes on the characteristics of the type and fulfills it in some sense. So Swan argues there's a type, uh, type anti-type, anti-type relationship. Um, and at this point, we can simply say, okay. Granted, but just seeing uh, what the text itself says about what Peter carries over from a like him, uh, it's nothing that a Protestant or an Eastern Orthodox, like, especially, uh, can't adopt. Now, where Swan goes with this is that he actually tries to infer the specific qualities of the full-on First Vatican Council papacy from this typology. And this is both the meat of the argument and also its fatal flaw. He will appeal to elements of the typology which Christ never says to Peter directly in uh, Matthew 16 or elsewhere, but which are allegedly of Eliekim. So, for example, Swan will argue that we can get the uh, we can get the successional nature of Peter's apostolic office from the fact that Eliakim's prime ministerial office was successional, and then he will say likewise we can get the supremacy of Peter's office over the over everyone else and thus his successes because of that. From the fact that him as the vizier, uh, below the king, was supreme over everybody. He could take charge of any sorts of other offices and functions in the kingdom of Israel, according to certain biblical passages, uh, if the time called for it. Uh, and then likewise, Swan would argue that there was an element of infallibility. And, and this one I haven't looked too deeply in into what his evidence is, apart from just like the passage saying, whatsoever he opens, none shall shut. Whatsoever he shuts, none shall open, which... I mean, okay. I mean, we can see where that where that is. Point being, he tries to infer certain qualities from Elijah and thus say because we can we can just establish that there is a type anti type relationship between Elijah and Peter, almost a form of prophecy, if you will. Therefore, we can see that what uh, the, the the significant features of Elijah's office are going to carry over to Peter, and given those features which I mentioned, therefore bang papacy protestantism can't explain it the Eastern Orthodox can't explain it and that is ultimately what tipped Cameron Bertuzzi over the edge in his conversion he actually directly mentions not just the argument but that four-hour presentation which you mentioned uh Pastor Michael um as tipping him over the edge on the argument and therefore over to Roman Catholicism so that is the argument in sum well if you guys want to say anything I don't know (laughs) before I continue
0: No, well, I'm just uh, on that. It's interesting that, you know, to just see, you know, an apologetic come to fruition live, like now that we have uh, the internet to keep track of things like this, uh, it'll be really interesting to see how those things develop. Um, But just, you know, while you were talking, I literally just looked up the passage, just read it quick. And I thought, I, you know, I don't see why I couldn't very easily uh, fit that into a Protestant understanding of loosing and binding and the keys I you know like that it doesn't even yeah. if there is a you know a typological image there which is compelling to me actually um just you know the connection it's compelling to me but it's not compelling to me in that it, it would then obviously lead to uh Rome's interpretation yeah mm. I,
1: I, yeah. Think this is, I uh-huh. actually think this is one of the more popular this is one of the reasons it I think this argument for people is feels compelling or or to whatever degree it is compelling, right? Again, uh, like you said, Swamp Sonnet is a is a sharp dude, right? No doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, this, I think it feels compelling because there is such an interest in typology in yep. biblical studies today. And right. so mm-hmm. it feels, it, it very much feels the, um, uh, it, it it is very much in the vein of things people are very interested in. I, I agree with you. I think the part of this, I think the real uphill battle, like again, I think, again, this is the thing that you've already mentioned that I just think is so important when speaking to Roman Catholics. They will bring you a biblical text and say, see, this is the proof, You know, whether it's with Mariology, whether it's claims of, of the papacy. And you go, so you're saying when she's most blessed of women, you're saying that entails perpetual virginity, co tricks, right? Like, like the thing, the amount of things that get loaded presuppositionally into a statement of scripture, that they use to prove a conclusion is so big and I think you even see it with this argument from typology whatever degree even whatever degree it works I think arguing infallibility from eliakim is such an uphill battle for them I oh yeah that is I think Oh, that yeah is, absolutely I think mm-hmm. if again I I think it's I think it's a tough I think it's a tough road to hoe regardless if you're going to say like the obscure prime minister office mentioned in isaiah is going to is the model jesus is using for leading the church right i think that's Mm -hmm. that's already difficult but the the argument of infallibility that is that's you know that's that's truly the unique claim of the papacy um absolutely truly, truly is um so Man, there's so many good questions we could, we mm-hmm. could jump to here. Let me, let me jump to, and this is a negative argument. But when I was thinking through these things seriously, I thought perhaps one of their strongest cases. And again, this is going to be no, no surprise to you. When I was a young, um when I was a young Protestant man, and I started looking into these things, for example, one thing someone said, what you should do, and this I recommend to all our listeners, go read the letter um Cardinal sadaletto wrote to Geneva to try and get them to rejoin Roman Catholicism mm. and then write then read Calvin's response. So when I was a fairly I was very uneducated when I read this by the way like you know so no shade on anyone who's like wow some of this is over my head I don't understand. Mm. Right my reason for not wanting to be Rome was the opposite of the aesthetic argument right I was raised in an evangelical and I was like looks too fancy <laughs> says things i don't get right like that was the, that was the extent of my argument and you know it was very jarring when i heard rc Sproul say things like so it's you know like he would he basically said like hey the only reason most protestants aren't becoming roman catholic is because they don't like how the service looks and i was like yeah isn't that a good reason you're know, like i had no idea why that wasn't a good
0: reason <laughs> you're like yeah i know right I know, like that's, that's awesome <laughs>
1: You know, my three songs, a fifty-minute sermon, and then one song, and we get out of there. I thought that was what it was, but uh, (laughs) isn't that what the Apostle Paul gave us? Is (laughs) that what happened? When I read read Sodaleto's apologetic for Rome, come back to Rome, Geneva. I read it and I said, I can't figure out a single thing here that isn't biblical. I, I don't, I, I couldn't see it Mm. right because I was so blind to the issues. Um, Right? He and again. Calvin in his masterful response to it, and I'm sure if we have Roman Catholic listeners who know about these two letters, they will heartily disagree that it was a masterful response. But the thing he pointed out is Sotoletto kept saying faith working by love. And I was so ignorant of what justification by faith was. I didn't get when he kept saying, we believe faith saves you working by love. I didn't see it. I I missed it, right? And I thought that that was, You know, I thought that there was nothing objectionable there. But obviously, when I was working through these things, in my opinion, and I think a lot of Protestants, um, honestly, right? And this is even what the Pints with Aquinas guy mentioned. Mm. Well, you certainly had to work through Sola Scriptura, didn't you? And, of course, uh, the aforementioned Christian apologist said, no, that wasn't really a factor at all, which was, of course, a shock to everyone listening (laughs) to that interview. For me, their their seeming strongest argument was their their position on the canon, Paul. Right, the mm-hmm. argument they make to Protestants: where do you so where's your canon, bro? Right, where do you get where do you get the New Testament, man? I, for me, that was um, that was something I had to work through a little bit. Um, do you want to do you want to just describe what is their kind of what's the argument? What is this argument I'm mentioning about this idea of the canon? Right, what's the problem here?
2: Yeah. So, so this is like, it's pretty much one of the many branches of their, of the umbrella of epistemic arguments that they'll bring um, where they'll claim, Hey, look, we have an objective mechanism for definitively establishing what is the Canon of scripture. Uh, You Protestants don't, you have to rely on fallible and uncertain like cherry picking of data and uh, standards and such in order to come to a Canon. So you have no real basis for it. Um, And so It'll be more or less that kind of thing. Certain Eastern Orthodox uh, apologists, modern ones today, will give that same kind of argument. Um, But it's absolutely hilarious because even Eastern Orthodoxy itself does not actually have an official canon, contrary to uh, very popular belief. Uh, there is a whole host of different canons proposed by Eastern Orthodox saints from the well ancient period. If we're going to grant, for argument's sake, that that is the Orthodox Church, all the way up to the early modern period, it, it's it's in a it's a perennial it's a perennial issue, and they don't see a massive they don't see a massive problem with it. What well, it is? Tag- um, I mean,
0: just by by doctrine, it is. I mean, the canon is by very definition open within Eastern Orthodoxy, right? Because the yeah. church could gather together and they could decide that they're yep we're adding another one right like we we decided this is well, well that that's the issue because like adding another one presumes that they have one to begin with which
2: is like well not quite i mean there's certain books which i like have never been disputed at all obviously um but then there's others where like eh, this saint may include it this council may include it this one may not there's there's a lot of there's actually quite a lot of diversity on the issue and on that one i highly recommend there is one Eastern Orthodox guy who I interact with a lot, super, super intelligent on these issues. He is like, for, for almost anything Eastern Orthodoxy, if I'm not familiar with the sources already, he's my go-to guy. i go straight to him. He's fantastic. Craig Truglia um, in his channel and blog is Orthodox Christian Theology. He's absolutely brilliant in many of these things. And he himself actually made a video a long while ago uh, that's simply called M- Epistemic Certainty. And he basically trashes the argument from apologists on his own side that, oh, look, the Protestants don't have a good canon, blah, blah, blah. And he himself actually goes through an entire laundry list of citations of different canons within the Eastern communion um, <laughs> and, and their claim councils. And so he's just like, look, guys, stop pretending this is a problem because it's, it's a quote unquote problem on our side as well. Um, just learn to accept that it's just reality. It's not a problem. It's just deal with it, whatever. Um, So, with the East, when they make that argument, it's just hilarious and ironic. But with Rome, they do have an objectively established canon through the Council of Trent in the 16th century. Now, that's the first problem right there. 16th century. Yes. Well over 1,400 years since the death of the last apostle. Now, that right there is the go-to. It's the very common go-to and really only necessary response to the argument is that by your guy's own standard, you did not have an objectively established, infallibly proclaimed canon until the 16th century. So by your own logic, if that is a problem, the church left people from the layman all the way up to the bishops in utter confusion as to what the canon was. And we can see this all the way up to the eve of the Reformation. You can see higher level uh, Roman bishops, Roman uh, hierarchs, such as the common example raised Cardinal Kyrton who give very diverse views on the nature of the canon and of scripture. Um, and that was okay. They didn't see that as a problem. The only, the only time it became a problem is when the Jesuit counter-reformers made it a problem, which is a whole other thing I'd love to get into at some point. Um, but they recognize it wasn't a problem because the mere existence of dispute doesn't mean uncertainty. And the mere existence of dispute on certain books doesn't therefore make other much more solid books uh, uncertain. And that's a distinction that uh, very common uh, uh, Lutheran distinction, which I personally love as well. And I actually recently did a stream on it with uh, New Kingdom Media um, called the distinction of homologumina and anti Homologumina being books, which are like certain, they are the core foundational books of the Christian uh, of the New Testament uh, versus the anti-legumina, which are books that are not quite as certain, but we still nonetheless receive. Um, but as a result, we submit uh, we we submit them to the homologumina. That is the homologumina. They become the lens through which we view the antilogumina, and not antilogumina, not the other way around. Point being, there was dispute on the canon for all time. You can even read, for example, John of Damascus, who gives a Protestant Old Testament, and then the New Testament. It's the 27. Uh, I think most of the 27 book. I don't know if he includes Revelation, but uh, the New Testament plus First Clement and the Didache. And so point being, there was diverse opinions on the canon for all time, and that was okay. But as a result, it does absolutely rubbish the Roman claim that, oh, without the church, you can't have a canon. Well, guess what? Every single church father who either issued their own canon of scripture, and thus by implication, they personally, (gasps) private interpretation, looked at the historical evidence and thought, this is the canon of scripture. And every father who did say, this book of scripture or as it is written here, which thus presumes a knowledge of at least some of what is canonical, every single one of those church fathers, in other words, every single ancient church father in existence denies that presupposition of that Roman argument. Um, And so it's absolutely bunk. doesn't make any sense. And it was simply, it's simply the other, another piece of fruit of the skeptic of the hyper-skeptical epistemology Mm -hmm. of the counter-reformation. It wasn't actually based in reality.
1: Is, is there, is there any, because I do think once uh, if you're at all feeling kind of convinced of this, once you take the like, hey, they didn't have a they didn't have a cannon until Trent red pill, it it feels like it kind of all falls apart. Yeah. Is there do they I just I I might just not be aware. Is there at all a, a response to this that it it d- doesn't matter or or, you know i i don't know is there is there a response beyond hand-waving to this to this to this obvious as in are you, are you by asking rome, by rome by rome uh roman their apologist yeah
2: as into the argument that i gave or to the to, problem to, that or to the problem that this would just steamroll them as well
1: yeah that you that before trent there is no canon list the yeah. fathers all oh, operate yeah. without one right what yeah. is there a response to this argument
2: there actually are. And I think, oh man, I gave this exact one. There was, there was one that I'm remembering really clearly right now. And then there was a there was another one, which, oh, because I gave both of them. I, and that's why I, I thank you guys for letting me plug it. Watch my interview with uh, New Kingdom Media, River Devereux. It was a very recent one on these canon issues. And I discussed uh, basically everything I'm going to say here, I said there, um, but it's definitely worth repeating because um, I might forget one of the things I wanted to say, but either way, either way. Uh, the key response will be, that I have received whenever I raise this basic historical fact, one of the key copes, I'm sorry, responses that I receive is that, oh, well, it doesn't matter because the church always had the capacity to give the canon. It always could have at some point. Um, it just chose to do so in the 16th century, to which I say, so bloody what? You, 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 that, that is an absolute irrelevant red herring that yeah. you, you still, by your own logic, believe that or assert rather that the church left the visible body of Christ in utter confusion onto the exact extent of the canon, which is a problem in your worldview, according to your argument. It's not for me, but it is for you. And so by your own view, and and really the cope only makes it worse, you're saying the church always had that capacity. Why didn't they bloody do it? (laughs) Why did you leave everybody in confusion for so damn long? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with your church? What's wrong with your pope, mate? So the (laughs) copium only just makes the argument again for us. It makes it even worse for them. It's absolutely ridiculous. Mm. It's stupid.
1: Yeah. 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 (laughs) And so, and then, so what, what then, um, again, I think, I think the reason the hyper skeptical, uh, and this podcast is, is pretty hardcore on no more. We don't allow any Jesuit tricks here on this podcast. So we're pretty hardcore, you know, we're pretty hardcore against those, but, but I think the hyper skeptical claims to people today feel they f- feel forceful because we live in a hyper skeptical age, right? So yeah. it works, right? Like, hey, great, you're hyper skeptical, me too, and I have the only <laughs> way out. What do you think? Um is there a what do you think a at least a partial Protestant response on the canon is? Is it mm-hmm. is it is it a historical argument? Is there more? What would how would you how would you start by helping our, yeah, and, you know, we have lots of people listening to to get this, you know, just the, the we'll call it the basic seeds of a Protestant epistemology, right? Yeah, that, you
2: know. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The answer I'd give is what was the method of the early church fathers of finding the canon? Two words, historical method. Mm. Look through the historic witness of the church. And you don't just have to look at the historic witness of the church. There's actually other bits of evidence you can find even from the witness of the early heretics. But either way, Look through the historic witness of the church, especially the, the earliest writers of the church who, make, who give evidence on the nature of the canon, um, which is the most valuable because they're either in direct connection to the apostles or in very close connection to the apostles, thus making their witness very historically valuable. Um, it's just simply just use the consistent principles of historical method that you take for granted and think is perfectly fine in everything else. Everyone already, all these people who make these skeptical arguments, they go about their daily lives Living on uh, our perception of the world, and they think that's perfectly fine. And even when we find an error, when we find that we or someone else is mistaken, we don't dread throw our hands up in the air and say, "Oh, it's all meaningless. Everything's up for interpretation." Bloody, bloody, blah, blah. We we instead think, uh "Okay, no, they they were mistaken. Now we know the reason why. Let's correct that. Let's find out why they were wrong. Let's see how mm-hmm. we can prevent that in the future." Simple. We live our life, and, and it works by the fact that we are alive and run yeah. a human civilization or civilizations proves that this works, our ability to comprehend mm-hmm. data, to analyze it and to make truth claims from it it does in fact work. Mm-hmm. And so all I ask for them is just, and, and the, this is the Protestant argument, just do that with the Canon in history. And Hey, as a total honesty thing, you're going to get more reliable results for certain books of the Canon than for others. And that's why that's partially or large reason why the, homolegumina versus anti antilegumina distinction comes up because some books are just not that very well attested, to be totally honest, um, which isn't the same as saying, therefore, they're definitely not uh, written. That's the mistake of uh, atheist polemicists where they equate a lack of evidence with uh, positive evidence against something. Um, so for example, the fact that the book of James wasn't attested very early is not therefore evidence in itself that it was a forgery or that it wasn't written by James. Um, that doesn't follow at all. Now, you can point to potential significance in the silences of certain writers. If there was an early writer, for example, who ought to have brought it up, but didn't, um, I'm not aware of any such silences. Um, But nonetheless, gaps in data do allow for reasonable doubt, which is fair enough. Um, But nonetheless, there are plenty of books, Old and New Testament, which are extremely well attested, very, very well attested within the first uh, 200 years of the Christian faith, for example, which is perfectly fine. We rely on the testimony both of direct eyewitnesses but then also the second hand accounts of eyewitnesses and even the third and fourth hand accounts of eyewitnesses in secular ancient history and that's perfectly acceptable you need to have a critical eye of course but that's just how we that's how it works because we recognize outside of a religious context where there's where there is a vested interest in some to disprove the christian faith we recognize that even second third fourth hand witnesses can and do provide valuable data because generally speaking humans can accurately replicate the information they give um, which again, that's not saying don't be a critical eye on that because you can find plenty of false information, not just in fourth, third, and second, but even the primary witnesses themselves. That's perfectly fine. That's that's just normal human nature. Um, but you still rely on that data. You still do rely on it. And we can do that with the canon itself. We have plenty of early church witness and even witness from heretics, early heretics on the canonicity, on the apostolic authorship of the New Testament. It's there. It exists. That's all you need to do. That's what the church fathers did. And so if you're claiming as a Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox to be in continuity with the, uh, with the belief and practice of the early church fathers, then you have to accept what I said. Otherwise you cannot claim that at all.
1: (laughs) Right.
0: So this, this brings up, I think um, you know, what comes up the most, at least in my conversations um, with those that are either considering uh, a move to Rome, again, it's just not common for, you know, uh, folks around us to go the Eastern Orthodox route, um, that maybe that will change at some point, but it doesn't seem likely to me. Uh, but as as someone is considering that, and I have conversations with them, or somebody who's like, they've already done that, right? I've, I have uh, many Roman Catholic friends and friends that have, you know, become Roman Catholic over the years. and And one of the biggest things that comes up is that, well, Rome really is the church of the early fathers, right? Like they, this, they have a claim uh, to be the ones who are in continuity with the teaching of the early church as we have mm-hmm. it. So I want to talk about that a bit because it came up even in what you just said, right? Mm-hmm. That actually there's there's ways that that is obviously not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what else, what else would you say to that, right? If where it yeah. said uh, that, well, the early church was in, you know, in, uh, holding the same beliefs as the the modern roman church what would you say I'd yeah say, i'd
1: say that um i'm not paul and oh, i'm sorry, an Matt. expert but i'll just say I, I just say i'm a presbyterian like clement was who wrote first clement yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's it love it, that's it. But anyways, yeah, yeah paul sorry i just had to <laughs> i just had to quick uh to just drop a, <laughs> a little fun on clement and, man knows his stuff that's it, so that's you it. He's did good. you see
2: did you see my ridiculously long presentation on first Clement's ecclesiology?
1: I haven't. It's it's on a list. I'm interested in. You uh, want to. You want to. So basically, <laughs> say that, that the, you, the work you've done. I'm, I'm interested. <laughs> I'm interested. So yeah, tell us. Tell us about. You can you can get into that, but tell us about this claim. But yeah, it is a. It obviously, both the East and Rome make this claim. Yes, we are. We're the Church of the Fathers. So. Yep. You know, yep. You know, shut up. Slow your, you know, know your role. You know, sit down, listen. Yeah, sure. So the
2: Roman claim that they are the Church of the Fathers is about as truthful as the claim that Muhammad is a prophet of God. Uh, that's what I. That's what I'd say. to <laughs> That um, it is that okay. divorce Brudal. from Brudal. reality. And I am super sorry to any Romanist friends who are listening. And hey, you know what? Know that I am very good friends with many of them, and I do content with them for God's sake. But we also have a mutual understanding that we think either one of us is in big, big trouble and we are not going to mince words about it. Um, again, you guys mentioned uh, how, how I did a collab with Milton Thomas a while ago. We're great friends and we both think each other as heretics and that we're in massive danger of hellfire. And yet we are friends nonetheless and we can even come together in, a, in sort of ceasefires when there's a greater common enemy uh, beyond us in some certain aspect. Um, but no, my friendships with them and, and, and even then a lot of a ton of my real life friends for many years now, are in the trad catholic uh, circles here in sydney um and so i'm very well in depth with them they respect me even knowing what i am and part of what actually maintains these friendships is the fact that i'm honest with what i believe i don't mince words i don't try to appease them um, so i will genuinely say that that the roman claim to being the church of the fathers is as truthful is as well evidenced as muhammad being a prophet of god because they are both utterly divorced from reality that is what i submit You can see it on many, many issues, chiefly, uh, arguably chiefly above all uh, the papacy itself, the claim that from the first Vatican council, that it was always known that the successors of Peter uh, were the, were the supreme ones over the church. Uh, They had the primacy and all that jazz. Um, And of course we know what the first Vatican council means by that. They mean by their very, uh, their very specific claims of universal immediate jurisdiction, the power to give ex cathedra, extraordinary magisterial statements Um, That are binding on the whole church and do not require the assent of the whole church with it. That is the key and important uh, development of papalism in recent centuries. Um, And when you just look at church history, those things just do not exist and are routinely contradicted time and time again. Um, you can see, with it, for example, in various episodes like the anathematization of Pope Honorius by a council, no less, um, which is which cannot work in a modern Roman uh, worldview, where the Pope cannot officially teach heresy uh, in his office, even even non ex cathedra, he can't do that. And yet, or at least according to many opinions, I'm not sure if that's absolutely established, but either way, he can't he can't teach heresy in his office, and he can't even be uh, he can't even be deposed, no less. And yet here you have a council in the early church. I believe it was the fifth council uh, condemning him for heresy, for teaching heresy in his office. And now, of course, later on, you see the Roman apologists say, oh, but there's a distinction between uh, a Pope teaching heresy in his office, which can't happen, but the Pope could personally believe heresy and he could personally, personally talk about it, um, which is just an absolute non-existent ex, ex post facto, uh, at justification of the issue trying to reconcile it with their beliefs that was not that was not a distinction that they held back then. they did not do that. they did not assert that there was simply a condemnation of Honorius for teaching heresy and with the way that they actually even word in the condemnation, this was in his capacity in his office. That's a fact. Um, you even have the case of Virgilius as well, similar similar issue um, and just tons and tons of little bits of evidence uh, both little and small, which come together paint the overall mosaic that the Bishop of Rome, and the Church of Rome was highly respected and actually did have a degree of primacy in some sense, especially in the later periods when there would be, for example, it would be like a final court of appeals. Um, but that is not the same as an active supremacy where the Roman bishop, uh, you, where A, you must be in communion with the Roman bishop to be in the church. Multiple episodes dem- demonstrate that as factually incorrect. You can see the Miletian schism, for example, um, which I talk about and on this whole issue, by the way. I actually helped produce a documentary for Craig Trulia, Orthodox Christian theology um, called who started the great schism. And that's like his most viewed video on the channel now, because I did make it like a full on doco and it went through all these issues, how uh, the ecclesiology of the early church uh, puts Rome to blame uh, in for the great schism, according to an Orthodox perspective. Very good. You should go watch it. Um, Point being there was not this conception in the early church of supremacy and this actually literally just arrived a few hours ago today, this book I ordered called Cyprian and the Bishops of Rome, Questions of Papal Primacy in the Early Church. Basically goes over all the all the evidence in uh, Cyprian and his writings and in his attitudes toward the various bishops of Rome uh, that he interacted with. And it basically affirms what you can very clearly see. In what he says, in right in stuff like, for example, the Council of Carthage in 286 or 248, I've, I've kind of got the dates mixed up a little bit. Um, but basically proclaiming that there was no universal bishop of bishops, that every bishop is ultimately responsible to God. And so every bishop has the right to uh, establish what they will teach. And big, big council there um, was against Stephen. And ultimately, um, on the issue of rebaptism, Cyprian did lose out, but he wasn't condemned for. Mm-hmm. Um, his opposition to the Bishop of Rome. That is a key science. It's a very, very key science. No one called him out um, and condemned Cyprian as a damn schismatic and heretic because he opposed the Bishop of Rome. Hmm. That didn't happen. As far as I'm aware, not a total expert. If that happened, then mea culpa. But as far as I've read, that did not happen. Hmm. And there were plenty of church fathers after Cyprian who, even though they believe he was wrong on the issue, still Hmm. revere him as a great saint, um, even in his opposition to Stephen. So, point being, there are there is both a huge symphony of positive evidence and silence uh, that just makes the assertion of the continuity of Rome with the early church just on this issue alone utterly untenable. Right. Utterly yeah. untenable. No good reason to believe it, and plenty of reasons to not believe right. it. And yeah. then you
1: could you could just add doctrines on. Let's do Mariology yep. in the early church mm. and how it's different than the highly developed roman catholic mariology today so tell us about uh a little bit about the eastern claim obviously Mm, less relevant to us here in the midwest but i'm still interested in this um what about the east's claim we are hey we don't have that papacy problem right we we don't you know like we we don't have uh and i like you said most eastern orthodox are very direct since Mm. they are the church of the fathers they are the church christ established and all of us are, are condemned to hell we're just a schism yep. of a schism right we're you know we're a wart on a wart, right in their mind
2: yep that's right that's right um so with the east it is compared to rome their claims are not as problematic hmm. you can see uh eastern attitudes of the church very very early on uh much more so than rome uh and yet ultimately on the absolute sense they're still incorrect because they assert they they assert a common view they hold with rome that the church is a specific united administration Mm. of uh, churches under a specific administrative communion, and that if you are outside of that specific visible body, you are not in the visible church of Christ. Uh, And likewise, they'll hold with the fact that there can be ecumenical councils, which by their very nature as an ecumenical council uh, will infallibly bind all believers across the world to a certain belief. And so not only divine revelation can bind the believer, not only is divine revelation foundational and definitional to Christian belief, but also these later ecumenical councils. And of course the simple problem with that, and it's a shared problem with Rome to be fair, but it's more so with the East simply because that is their mechanism. Uh, Simpliciter, whereas in Rome, they have the Pope above all that really. And the problem with that is that Christ never established that mechanism. That's, that's not in his mind. That's not something that the apostles established. They never promised any kind of a charism of infallibility on post-apostolic councils which if they gather all together and if they're convoked by an emperor which is a key feature of early ecumenical count of the ecumenical councils it's really how they arose um that therefore they're going to be guaranteed protection Hmm. from preaching any error whatsoever that's never been promised by christ was never promised by the apostles um there's even there's even assumptions that councils of all sorts can actually err you can see it for example uh, in the work of St. Saint, Saint Augustine. I think it was on baptism against the Donatists. I believe that was the work. And I think it's book two of that. It's something that Dr. Gavin Ortland on his channel Truth Unites, he's done a bunch of content on it. And it's pretty decisive. Uh, even when you see the Romanists who tried to respond to him and he responded to them, you could see that they were coping quite a lot, quite a lot. Um, you see with Augustine himself that he holds that the only thing that does not err is Holy scripture which is quite definitionally Sola Scriptura, even though elsewhere Augustine does express very high views to the authority and the guidance that God gives to councils, for example, um, even to a level that most Protestants will not be comfortable with. And yet that doesn't change the fact that in a certain work, he talks about everything from local bishops all the way up to what he calls plenary councils, which are called for the entire Christian world that even they may err, may, may, may err that They can be corrected by later councils, and so we can even see that attitude explicitly with Augustine right there, and possibly others. Although I haven't done <clears throat> a mega deep dive and trying to find uh quote minds myself on this issue, um, we see that attitude there. There wasn't an assumption that a council, merely by nature of it being a council, uh, ecumenical council, uh, was infallible. And the other reality that totally mitigates against this is the fact that. Right after the first supposed ecumenical council, that is Nicaea, um, there were multiple counter councils raised with, with hundreds of bishops in attendance. You have the Council of Ariminum, for example, which these, well, here's the thing these councils between the first ecumenical council and the second ecumenical council around 380, which is Constantinople, uh, Nicaea, Constantinople, between them, there were multiple counter councils, both in the local level and even on the so called ecumenical level. You have, for example, Um, I believe it was the Emperor Constantius. Uh, Don't kill me anyone who's watching and they don't get it. Uh, And they, and they, and they find out that I'm wrong. I'm not exactly the name. There was a Roman emperor who ran two councils, one in the East, one in the West, in order to uh, further solve the dispute issue after Nicaea. And those councils affirmed Homoian theology or uh, which, which basically said that christ was like the father according to all things but he wasn't consubstantial within they rejected that language um and then likewise the actual first co- council of constantinople in 359 affirmed the same thing kind of as a, a almost like a wrap-up of uh, a riminum in the west and uh Sirmium in the east um and so there were multiple big councils attended by many bishops they did not have the presumption that, hey, Nicaea was this ecumenical council, therefore it was infallible, therefore we can't reject it uh, because this is the true church speaking. They didn't have the presumption. They mm. looked at councils like any other institution does, a gathering of bodies in order to solve a problem. Uh, but if we don't like the results, well, we can call another council and try to solve the problem again. Mm. So the the early attitudes, quite decisively, in my opinion, speak against the Eastern view as well. Uh, both Roman and Eastern, but in this case, Eastern view, um, that ecumenical councils were established as in themselves infallible institutions. That's just simply not what we see at all. And the Eastern system is totally unevidenced
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is, I always encourage people, you know, one of the things that uh, made this claim of, you know, whether it be again, not interacting with the Eastern Orthodox, although uh, just this past year, I, I try to, um, every year pick a different Christian tradition that I don't know as well and just try to read what I can um, about their history and about doctrine and just to get a better, better sense for things. And um, so I did a a little bit of a deeper dive into Eastern Orthodoxy uh, for the first time, but uh, the claims of Rome or others that, no, we are the historic church. Look, we are in agreement with the church fathers and you guys aren't Uh, that just never held much weight to me because I, read the church fathers from pretty early on, um, in at least my reading Christian life. And like what you find is just incredible diversity and not only that, but you know, it's, it's not as though you get to say the reformation and you have, men who are breaking from Rome and saying, look, we don't care what those guys said. We don't care about the fathers. Give us just the words of scripture. No, they, you know, I mean, you can read Mm. any of uh, the reformers and they'll say, well, look, here's what the scripture teaches. And look, Mm. we can see this in the fathers, right? We like, they will, they will go back and say, look, this is, we are in line, actually far more in line with the fathers than Rome at this time. So yeah. So it's just something that I, I think if you read, just go read. I mean, seriously, go and actually read the sources for yourself. And I think that that can be um, incredibly helpful. So um, we Absolutely. should, I, I think we should probably start bringing things. Uh, because
1: we're podcasters, not streamers. So it's we true. Also- we're,
0: we're not streaming. <laughs> um, we will probably start bringing things to a close. It'd be great to carry on some of these conversations mm-hmm. and people can reach out and let us know if there's anything that um, they want us to hit on a little bit more sometime. Uh, but uh, my, I, I want to bring things to a very winsome close. So uh, this is winsome winter on the Restless Podcast, and so we bring lots of folks on. We try to be extra, extra winsome, and to add a little bit of Midwest nice into this um, Australian rage machine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's. I want to ask this. Uh, give us something that you know in your interaction and in your study of roman catholicism and eastern orthodoxy what are the things about both traditions that um you appreciate most Mm. right because obviously there are things that we can learn as protestants from rome and from the eastern orthodox or at least i believe there are and so i'm just interested to hear what what are the things that we can learn what do you appreciate most about these traditions
1: dude that is the most midwest nice place to leave this at
0: (laughs) i told i told you how how tim keller of
2: you guys but (laughs) (laughs) i think i have to give an answer similar to do you guys know the former orthodox priest joshua shuping so um he's really good you should you should look at you should look at him but i interviewed him a while a long while ago like shortly after he first announced his leaving the orthodox church and becoming a a reformed uh, pastor which is super cool um I interviewed him and I think my answer to this question is going to be similar to his because I actually asked him this very same question. All this criticism that you give of the East is great, it's fantastic, but can you give us something that you think is like really positive that people can learn from the East? And he, to my genuine surprise, you could see me visually in the, uh my facial reactions there, but also in how I said, well, I'm not going to lie, I was, I was expecting you to actually like bring something up. But his answer and likely my answer as well is that, look, there is almost there is so little arguably nothing i i have to it have to take me so long to actually think through these many of these things but nothing at least right now comes up in my mind that is a good thing one could learn from the east or from rome that you can't also learn mm-hmm. from a good protestant tradition yeah that is my mindset right now everything yeah. good about rome in particular you could very much easily find in a good and church. Do you like the very reverent, deep aesthetics of the Roman Mass? Go to a traditional Anglican morning prayer or a, or a Lutheran one, yep. um, or even even some very traditional uh, Presbyterian ones. Uh, do you like the depth of Roman scholastic medieval uh, theology? Good news, reform scholastics exists. It's a thing. It's very, very rich tradition. You need only look at, for example, Richard Richard Mueller's own uh, reform dogmatic sect post uh, post Reformation reform dogmatics. That's an entire four volume set only on a small set of questions in that. At that, um, I believe it's on the nature of Holy Scripture and then some questions regarding the Trinity, which is a very small set compared to all the discussions out there. And that's four fat volumes. Um, just on that alone, uh, as far as I'm aware. Um, you can also find works such as, I literally have a work, a classic work I actually found in my local Christian bookstore. Um, I think it's by, is it by Heritage? Oh, I, don't, I don't know if it's by Heritage Books, but it's actually a Presbyterian work. Um, I think shortly after the, con, uh, the Westminster uh, Confession, uh, shortly after that stuff mainly happened, I think it was in the 17th century. Um, and it's a book called Jus divinum regini mis ecclesiastici, The Divine Right of Church Government it's basically a large apologetic for Presbyterian government and it is very scholastic in how it's laid out. I really, really like it. Super in depth uh, deals with issues of scripture. I think church history, uh, church history as well to a bit, but very much also a lot of stuff on uh natural theology on, uh, on logically establishing the premises and all and good reasoning and that. And so, so that's, that's just scholastics as well. Um You like the priesthood? Well, Anglicans and Lutherans, we got that too. Fantastic. Like, granted, we don't believe in the kind of a priesthood that Rome in the East do, um, but it is still a priesthood. We at least call our guys priests, you know? So if you want to call someone father, well, congratulations, become a high church Anglican. (laughs) Go go for it. Knock yourself out. Um, So there's those issues. Um, Really, the only one where I can think that there may be something really unique um, that really isn't present in Protestant traditions, I guess is with the certain Eastern traditions, because I have gained an appreciation with studying the Eastern traditions. And there may be some things in terms of certain spiritual practices um, in the East, which really don't exist in, in the West, whether Protestant or Rome. Um, that said, though, that only comes about after you uh, sift away through a lot of shockingly bad spiritual practices and prayers that the East does have. Uh, and again, I need only recommend uh, Pastor Joshua Shooping, go to his channel. He goes through major Marian prayers, for example, that are like utterly idolatrous. Of course, the Easterners will say, no, it's not. But if you just read them, at least with your Western mindset, oh dear, it's, it's bad. But um, certain pra- practices, I guess, um, regarding their prayer life, maybe the rigor that they do it um, and more appreciating the reality of mystical experience and not having to rationally comprehend everything that can be benefit to that. Um. Apart from that though, I have to be totally honest. Every good thing I know that I appreciate in Rome in the East is something you can find in a pro tradition somewhere. That's, mm-hmm. that's what I'd say about that
1: well and for me that's comforting because it it means i'm interviewing someone who's not gonna become a newman on us so that for me <laughs> is personally uh as you guys can as all of our listeners know this is why i was excited wanted to do this interview just mm. just fire fast talking um australian gold so we just want to thank everyone for joining us definitely go check out the other paul's channel we'll link to definitely channel and twitter um in the show notes and I'll, and I, when I edited this, I'll listen to some of the things he mentioned and I'll try and make Thanks sure I get so. those links as well. Thank you, Paul for coming. Can out. I, can
2: I give some final words? To oh, Super yes, please. Sorry. Can you I give some final words to people? You definitely can. Um in, in this thing, love this interview. Thank you guys so much for having me on as well. Um, Most of what I was saying, I have no notes with me. This is mostly stuff I have in my head. Um, And so even though I'm quite confident with everything I've, I've said, especially specific historical arguments, um, there's, there's always the possibility that I could have misspoken and all that. Um, and so Maya culpa. I recognize that reality. So if you're going to try and do a, a big response compilation, like, Oh, Paul made this wrong claim. It's like, yeah, you're not doing anything special. Congratulations. Um, and I will tell you a new one if you try that. But anyway, um, if you, for this issue, don't just rely on what I'm saying. My whole mission with what I do is to be a good gateway to the sources themselves um, and also giving the good tools and how to use and interpret those sources so that people themselves can actually get their own good foundation on these issues. And so with everything that I've mentioned, go to the sources themselves, check what I'm saying, um, and especially likewise, check what Rome in the East are saying with sources, because the way, I'll be blunt, the way that they get uh, people to convert to them 99% of the time is through an utter ignorance of the sources And through people, uh, young Protestants, unwittingly accepting uh, their framework of how to view the sources. And so I implore people to not do that, to learn good historical method, get good books uh, that may be recommended by uh, solid Christian uh, thinkers, uh, solid Christian theologians and historians and such. Uh, Learn historical method, learn hermeneutics, learn good exegesis. Uh, and use that to go to the historical sources on these important questions and actually find the facts of the matter. Because I'm extremely confident, having done so on a number of subtopics within these larger issues and other topics entirely, I'm extremely confident that you will find the claims of the imperial churches utterly lacking. Um, And if you don't think so, if you claim to have done so and don't think they're lacking, I'm happy to dialogue and debate you on these issues. So um, yeah, again, thank you guys so much for having me
1: so with that join restless next week when we come back join paul for whatever the next epic two and a half hour stream he will certainly uh, unleash <laughs> on the world soon and i am trying sure to make watch- more short videos <laughs> oh there you go and make sure you watch out for drop bears